listening to the Futures Podcast with me, Luke Robert Mason. On this episode, I speak to computational biologist, Dr. Andrew Steele. We should go after the root cause of the biggest amount of human suffering now. So we've managed to extend lifespans in loads of ways in the past, but the frontier now is the treatment of ageing. Andrew shared his insights into the latest scientific research dedicated to tackling age-related disease, the societal implications of extending the human lifespan, and the habits linked to a longer life. You can also view a video version of this conversation at futurespodcast.net. Aging is the world's leading cause of death and suffering, but since getting older has always been part of the human experience, we've never felt the need to question it. That, however, could soon be changing. With the development of new medicines, procedures and interventions offering us the possibility to both live longer and to live healthier. So what might some of these innovations look and feel like? Well, luckily, they've all been catalogued in Andrew Steele's exciting new book, Ageless, where he investigates the myriad of ways that science might soon slow the aging process and, by doing so, fundamentally transform the human condition. So, Andrew, since we're on the topic of death and aging, let's start with a fun question. When and how do you want to die? Oh, that's a fascinating one. I'd like to die as late as possible and as quickly as possible. <laughs> I'm sort of not so worried about death itself. It's the suffering that really bothers me. Because if you look at people of more our, our grandparents' generation, you know, I've watched my grandparents slowly getting older, getting more diseases, getting more frail, getting less able to, you know, manage doing stuff about the house. And it's that period of time that I really don't want to be experiencing. Yeah, that's the funny thing with, with the longevity community. They're quite happy to have immortality, to, to live forever. And in a funny sort of way, when I think about how long I want to live. I always think about David Bowie. He lived to 68 years old and he lived a really good life. And I would rather take 68 David Bowie years over like immortality any day of the week. I'm I'm not really sure. I mean, I, the thing that I feel is I don't want to die now. Um, I've got stuff to do. I'm quite enjoying being alive. I'm not saying there is no point in the future at which I would wish to die because that's uh, you know a ridiculous thing to say. You know, maybe if I were to live to a thousand or five thousand, I'd get bored or I'd you know some bizarre thing had happened or the world you know ceased to be an interesting place or or anything could happen. But honestly, I think that the way I think about it is day by day. I think, you know, I don't want to die today. I don't want to die next week. And more than death, you know, I don't want to get Alzheimer's next week. I don't want to get cancer next week. And I can't imagine whether I'm 68 or 168 or 1,068, why that would change. So that's, it's, it's sort of, a, I, I don't, you know, I think immortality, but one day at a time. Well, that's the interesting thing about reading the book, because when you talk about aging, you're, you're looking aging from a scientific perspective. So to help our audience, what do you mean when you talk about the thing called aging? Well, I've got two different ways of thinking about it. And the first of them is a statistical definition, which I think is the sort of broadest and most catch-all, but it doesn't really sort of cover the nitty gritty of what's going on inside our bodies. So let's start with that one. Um, aging is just the fact that some organisms increase their risk of death as they get older. And humans are obviously an example of this. So I'm in my 30s. That means my risk of death every year is somewhere around one in a thousand. And I'm pretty happy with those odds because, you know, if you could imagine projecting that out into the future, on average, I'd live into my thousand and thirties. Obviously, that isn't the case. Those odds change quite dramatically quite quickly and actually humans have what's called a mortality rate doubling time 
So a time in which their risk of death doubles. And that's about every seven or eight years. And although it starts out very small when you're a young adult, it can get very big very quickly. So by the time you're 65, it's somewhere in the region of 1% chance you won't make your 66th birthday. By the time you're 80, it's about 5%. If you make it to your 90s, then you're looking at something like a one in six chance that you won't make your next birthday. So this thing, you know, so it, it's almost a wall of mortality. You know, it, it creeps along pretty, pretty slowly for the first four or five decades of life and then suddenly shoots up once you enter your 60s. So that's the statistical way that I think about aging. And of course, as I was saying, it's not just about the death. The good thing about death, if that's, uh, something, that's, <laughs> if that's something I want to say, is that it's very easy to measure. And it's very hard to game. So, you know, you can, you can argue about definitions of disability or frailty or even perhaps definitions of states of disease. But whether or not someone's dead or alive, you know, that's pretty unambiguous, even, even probably to a non-doctor. So that's sort of the statistical way of thinking about things. The biological way is to look at that, and this is you know what this is actually what inspired me into this field. I sometimes you know tell people that I changed career because of a graph, and that graph is that increase in mortality with time. Because what that says to a scientist isn't just oh god, you know, there's a sort of <laughs> level of existential terror. It's also the fact that there must be in order for all of these different diseases, cancer, heart disease, stroke, dementia, you know, go on listing them, frailty, grey hair, wrinkles. In order for all of those things to be happening around the same time in our lives, there must be some underlying biological processes that are driving all of those things to happen at the same time. And um, the the modern accepted biological definition of aging is to look at what are called the hallmarks of aging. So these are the underlying cellular molecular processes that cause us to grow old. And they're things like damage to our DNA, they can be damage to the cells, uh, the molecules inside our bodies. Some of our cells um, become senescent, they've effectively become aged themselves and stop dividing. And the aggregate sum total of all of these things is all of the consequences of aging that we're more familiar with, cancer to wrinkles. Well, this is the important thing, because when you talk about agelessness, what you're really talking about is some something called negligible senescence. And it's really important to note this difference because what you're talking about in the book isn't immortality. It is this thing, negligible senescence. So what is the difference? The difference, and actually sometimes negligible senescence is confusingly but quite alluringly called biological immortality. And uh, what it means is that it's a risk of death that doesn't change with time. So that might sound like um, something that's a bit strange. It's certainly not happening in any of the animals that we're familiar with day to day. You know, we observe our pets, our cats, our dogs, our you know mice. They can all age in a very similar way to humans, actually. Mammals you know, all get cancer, they all get cataracts, they all lose their hearing, they all become frail as they get older. But if you look at some other species that are a little bit more distant from us, things like tortoises, the reason the tortoise is on the front of my book is because tortoises have this property of negligible senescence, this biological immortality. And their risk of death actually isn't as low as a human's when they're a young adult. It's something like one or two percent a year, but by the time um, you know, a tur- 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 yeah. by the time a turtle, um, I can't say turtle or tortoise. I just can't make my mind up. Well, well, um, when we get later on, and I start saying biogenerotology, then you know uh, we're even. But uh, I said antagonistic pleiotropy on breakfast radio the other day, and I managed not to screw it up. Yes. So I think that's a, that's a feather in my cap. Yes. So, but turtle. Tortles. Tortles. Fair enough. New species discovered by Andrew Steele. By the time a tortoise is in its 150s, its risk of death is still 1 or 2%. So what that means is that basically no matter how long ago they were born, that risk of death stays the same. And that means that although, you know, as I say, their risk of death isn't as low as a young adult human's, they can just carry on going for longer and longer because they don't hit that wall of mortality when they get to a certain stage of life. Well, you say in the book, Aging is the world's most important problem. So why should we cure aging? 
it's just the sheer scale of the suffering. So if you think about that, you know, mortality rate doubling time, doubling every seven or eight years, and that means that when you get into your 60s, your 70s, your 80s, lots of bad stuff is happening to your body. You're becoming frail, you're losing your independence, you can start to become forgetful, you know, maybe even get into the early stages of dementia or, or full-blown dementia. So you can lose, you know, your personality, your memories, everything that it is to be you. So those are all the things that I care about. And then you look around the world, and actually, um, I think life expectancy globally is higher than a lot of people expect. In 2019, which I think is the latest figure we've still got available, um, global life expectancy was actually 72.6 years. And what that fundamentally means is that most people in most countries are going to live long enough to experience these diseases of aging. So it's the biggest cause of death, it's the biggest cause of suffering. To put that into a slightly more concrete um, numerical terms then if you look at the 150,000 people who die every day on planet Earth, over 100,000 of them effectively die because of ageing. They die of all these age-related conditions. So, you know, if you look at that, two, over two-thirds of deaths being caused by this single thing and all the decades of suffering, the sort of slow, you know, cancer doesn't just kill you overnight. You don't just wake up one morning dead because of cancer mm. or rather not wake up one morning. You know, it can affect you over years, over decades as the tumour gets bigger. You have all the treatment. Uh, if you look at heart disease, you're less able to get around. You're less able to do stuff because you're slowly you know, losing your fitness because of heart problems. And then eventually a heart attack can take you out or heart failure. So it's just looking at this, like two-thirds of deaths, the billions and billions of people who are going to suffer in a you know, slow decline, I think it's just almost inarguable that this is the world's largest problem. Well, to tackle that problem, a new field has emerged, and that's one of biogerontology, which I think I've absolutely <laughs> butchered. Biogerontology, that's what Bio-gerontology. I can do. Biogerontology, <laughs> there we go. I mean, what, what, what was it that actually kickstarted this field, and, and what has it discovered about the process of ageing? I think looking back at the history of it is really fascinating because um, there, are, there are a few times when you just think, why didn't scientists do more of this? And I think the fundamental problem was throughout a large fraction of the 20th century, ageing was seen as this inevitable process. Mm. So if you go back to the beginning of the 20th century, this is the sort of age when you know physics had really firmly established this idea of thermodynamics. We knew that things tended to increase in disorder with time, this idea of increasing entropy. And it didn't seem that unlikely that living organisms had exactly the same problems that you know machines do. Because we know that if you have a steam engine and you leave it running you know, for a long time, eventually it's going to get rusty. It's going to start to, some of its components are going to start to break. And unless you get in and maintain it, it's going to break down. And it just didn't seem that weird to extend that idea to living things as well. And then, as I say, if you think about the sort of animals that we're familiar with, most of them are mammals, you know, we, humans for their entire existence of age to death. If you think about our farm animals, our pets, they've all had exactly the same thing. So it just looks like this sort of inevitable process of falling apart. And then as we came to understand a bit more about it, a bit more about the evolutionary theories of ageing, actually, strangely, this increased understanding doubled down in this idea that the whole case was completely hopeless because the evolution of ageing is incredibly complicated. That's why you end up using words like antagonistic filiotropy. I <laughs> almost screwed that up. Almost, um, yeah. <laughs> because it's it's just this fantastically complicated idea of like how how could something that is designed you know evolution survival of the fittest so how do we end up evolving to become old and basically to, you know, to cut a long story short mm. the output of these theories was that aging is going to be the result of you know many dozens hundreds even perhaps of different processes and so the idea that you could study it in any meaningful coherent way was just it seemed for the birds i think what really changed things was um in the 1990s and that sort of started in the 80s but the real revolution was in the 90s because um there were experiments done in labs which looked at individual genes and they found that if you remove a single or not remove yeah if you if you disable a single gene in a nematode worm which is a very commonly used uh it's called a model organism so it's a sort of simple organism that we use to extrapolate to understand biology. Um, you can disable a single gene and you can increase the lifespan of a worm. In the 90s, we discovered it was by a factor of two. Actually, 
the current winner, you can increase the lifespan of a worm by a factor of 10. And what this means is that suddenly this was accessible to lab biology. This wasn't some you know, incredibly complicated process involving hundreds and hundreds of different sub-processes, which is completely impossible to understand. You could go in, you could you know, surgically disable a single gene and have these massive effects. And I think that was the cultural shift that was really required. This wasn't some immutable, complicated thermodynamic nightmare. It was something you actually could do in the lab. Well, you just said it there that there is a complicated relationship between this thing called evolution and ageing. And humans have developed over millions of years of, of evolution. So surely there must have been some sort of evolutionary advantage to ageing and to eventually dying. I think evolution, um, so, so what the, the current theories say is there isn't really an advantage. It's more of a sort of process of evolutionary neglect. And the irony is that the reason that we age is actually that we can die of things other than aging. So if you imagine you're a prehistoric human, there are loads of dangers in your everyday environment. You know, there are, there are saber-toothed cats, there are infectious diseases, probably the main one. There's other humans, you know, out to kill you because they want to you know, have your territory or have your food. So that means that we think life expectancy back in those days was probably about 30, 35 years old. Um, that actually reflects a large burden of infant mortality. So there were some prehistoric humans making it into their 50s and 60s. But nonetheless, there were lots of different ways that you could die before you got you know, properly old in modern terms. So what that means is imagine you're um, an organism and you're trying to work out I'm going to evolve. I've got to allocate the amount of energy that I've got, you know, fixed amount of energy that you take in with your food. I want to allocate that in the most efficient way. And you can use that to give your animal stronger muscles, or you can use it to get, you know, grow larger. There are so many different ways that you can allocate that energy. And one of them is that you can use it to maintain your body. So, you know, basically you could create defenses against cancer or defenses against heart disease to keep the body in pristine condition into old age. But the trouble is by doing that, you're taking energy away from other things. And the key thing is thought to be reproduction, because obviously that's a hugely energy intensive process, you know, growing a baby inside you if you're a woman, you know, taking care of your kids, regardless of your gender. Um, so that means that there's definitely a preference in animals to reproduce before you're dead. You've mm. got to gear up, you've got to have that kid, you've got to get it out into the world, you've got to get it, in the case of humans, you know, we've got a very long childhood period, you've got to get it capable of fending for itself before you get taken out by a disease or before you get killed by something else. And so the incentive is to move some of that energy away from maintaining our bodies in perfect condition until you know, the end of time effectively and put it towards reproducing, getting your kids out and getting your genes spread around. Because obviously, you know, there's no... We, we call evolution survival of the fittest. I actually think we should change that and call it reproduction of the fittest because it's passing on your genes to the next generation. It's the crucial thing here. Well, is that why, and, and you mentioned it in the book, is that why historically it seems like eunuchs have a longer lifespan because they're not worried about reproducing? It's a fascinating question. I think the honest answer is that we don't know, um, but there's definitely an argument for that. And so, so if you look at the difference in life expectancy between women and men, women tend to live about five years longer than men. It depends a bit on the country, but it's very hard. I think there's only two countries in the world where women live longer than men. So it's a, sorry, where men live longer than women. Um, but what you find is that if you look back at historical examples of castration, so removal of the testicles, then men who have been castrated seem to live longer lives. And these, this study of the eunuchs is particularly impressive. Um, and perhaps the reason, though, as I say, we're not 100% sure, is that men are constitutionally able to live as long or maybe even longer than women. But testosterone is a sort of kamikaze hormone. It mm. gears us up very fast to be a big, strong reproducing machines. But at the same time, it diverts energy away from those processes of maintaining our bodies. So although we can't be 100% sure that is the reason, it's certainly a leading theory as to why castration is um, yeah, a way to make yourself live longer. Yeah, I'm not sure whether that is something that I would be willing to do. Do. Neither am I. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you, you go through the book and, and you, you 
show us all of these wonderful ways in which we might be able to cure aging. But do you think we're actually close to curing aging? Do you think it could happen in the next, say, 100 years? I think it's a really difficult question. I certainly think there's a distinct possibility it could happen mm. in the next hundred years, but it's just, there are just so many unknowns. The reason that I'm confident it could happen, you know, in the next hundred years rather than the next thousand or the next you know, 10,000 years of human future is because we, we, we can make it a lot easier for ourselves. So when I talk about a cure for aging, exactly as you say, what we're really talking about is negligible senescence. We're talking mm. about a risk of death that doesn't vary depending on how long ago you were born. And getting to that state, you know, if I could snap my fingers and get to that state, that's that just not possible because the understanding of biology we'd have to have in order to be able to engineer ourselves to be negligibly senescent is just completely, you know, way beyond anything we could possibly conceive of today. However, if you look throughout history, one thing that's definitely happened is that because life expectancy is extended by a particular treatment, people then go on to benefit from future treatments that are developed during their lifetime. So one of the examples I give in the book is that people who were born in the 1930s or 1940s, they were born into a time when there was much less infectious disease. Back at the beginning of the 20th century, there was a lot more awareness of hygiene. Um, and so you know, that, that was already starting to stamp out infectious disease. But we we're also getting vaccines. The first antibiotics were developed in the 40s and starting to be rolled out. So those people lived through a period where they you know, they didn't die as children of infectious disease. And what that meant is that by the time they were getting old, by the time it was the 1990s or the 2000s, there were things, you know, medication for heart disease or treatments for heart disease that simply hadn't even been conceived of when they were children. So that means that by living a bit longer early in life, they were then able to live longer to benefit from these future medical advances. And we could do the same with, you know, treatments for aging. So it could be, I think, the first treatment... We could have the first drug against ageing within the next 10 years, potentially. Um, and if that happens, that then means that people who are alive at that point will be able to take that drug and extend their own healthy life a little bit further into the future. And if you take care of your health, you know, if you do exercise, if you eat enough, if you, so, you know, if you eat right, if you don't smoke, all that sort of thing, then you can keep extending your healthy life and potentially give it more time for more advanced anti-ageing treatments to be developed. And so it's not as though we need to develop a cure all at once. We don't have to come up with some you know, magic, incredible computer model of human biology that allows us to completely reprogram ourselves all we need to do is stay one step ahead of mortality and i'm not saying it'll happen this generation or next generation but i think ultimately that's how aging is going to be cured we're going to end up adding a year to life expectancy every year such that you know you're just growing up normally you know maybe they'll expect to die at 80 maybe they'll expect to die at 150 whatever life expectancy is for their society but gradually as more and more of these treatments get developed their funerals will just be receding into the future faster than they're chasing them and i think that's the point at which we can be said to have cured aging even if you know the sort of true negligibly senescent humans won't exist for you know maybe even hundreds of years after that as long as you can stay one step ahead of things well, you do such a wonderful job in the book of summarising some of the latest scientific advances for curing ageing, and they broadly fall under about three categories. There's either the removal, the replacement, or the repair of our cells. So uh, which of those three do you think is the most effective way currently to prolong our lives? I think the best example at the moment by head and shoulders, basically, is, is a removal therapy, which is uh, senolytic drugs, they're called. So um, there are these cells in your body. I actually mentioned them earlier. They're one of the hallmarks of aging. Accumulation of senescent cells is thought to be one of the reasons that we grow old. And um, these cells, so they were first discovered in the 1960s. There was a, a chap called Leonard Hayflick who was messing around with cells in a dish in the lab and he was watching them divide. And he noticed that after about 50 divisions, they just stopped dividing. And worse than that, they looked really weird under the microscope. So I'm not a, an expert cell biologist by any means, but you know, it's, it's blindingly obvious looking at these things. They're these horrible, distorted shapes. There's clearly something a bit amiss. And so these cells, you know, they seem to be old. They divided too many times. They were christened senescent cells after the scientific term for old. 
And then, you know, that sort of begs the question, is it because our cells inside our body are aging, that our bodies as a whole are aging overall? And the, the, the consensus basically over the intervening decades of research has been, yes, it is. We now know that organisms do accumulate these senescent cells as you get older. Um, and the problem isn't so much the cells themselves, they're sat there not dividing, you know, in theory, they're not doing any harm. But the problem is they emit this toxic cocktail of molecules that basically accelerates the aging process. The purpose of that cocktail is usually to attract the immune system. So it's saying, over here, I'm a senescent cell. I'm not dividing anymore. I'm not really doing my job. Can you come and clear me up? And in most senescent cells case, you know, a passing immune cell will come and gobble them up. Problem solved. But the problem is, as you get older, your cells are divided more times. We now know there are more ways that cells can go senescent. So they can get damaged. They can uh, you know, have problems with their DNA. They can be just under sort of cellular stress. And if any of these things happen, the cell goes senescent just to be on the safe side in, you know, in, in huge part to stop it becoming a cancer because a cell that isn't dividing can't divide infinite numbers of times and become a cancerous cell. So that's sort of thought to be the evolutionary uh, underpinning for this. But the problem is they sit there emitting these molecules, telling the immune system to come over and clear it. And the immune system, as we get older, we also know gets less effective. That's one of the reasons that coronavirus, for example, is so much deadlier in older people because their immune systems are, are less strong than those in, the, in people who are younger. And that means that the senescent cells are appearing more frequently. They're being cleared less frequently. And so all, overall, they increase in number. So that's a long story, but the, the sort of the conclusion of that is that we've now finally got ourselves into a position where we can remove those cells. Scientists have identified drugs that you can use to delete these cells while leaving the rest of the cells of your body intact. And if you give these drugs to mice, the mice just get biologically younger. So obviously they live a bit longer. If you give them to 24-month-old mice, these drugs, uh, they live another few months. So mice don't live as long as us. 24 months is about 70 years in sort of mouse years. Um, and so that means they you know, maybe live another few years in human terms. But they're not just hobbling along, you know, geriatric, having their sort of horrible end of their life extended. They get less cancer. They get less heart disease. They get fewer cataracts. They can run further on treadmills. Um, they even have better fur. So it really does look like you're sort of globally reversing the aging process by getting rid of these aged cells. And I think um, that shows us the way because it shows us that by removing one of these hallmarks of aging, you can take away one of the fundamental causes of all these different biological changes and slow down or even reverse the aging process overall. I mean, this sounds very exciting, but still the, the science of aging is one that is very complicated and there's sometimes problems with some of these solutions. They, instead of helping us, they may actually cause new diseases or even cancers in the case of telomeres. Yeah, it's it's a really complicated area. I, the thing that makes me most optimistic about senolytics, so these drugs that remove senescent cells, is that in all of the studies, there are very few side effects reported. And there's there's an extent to which you have to take this with a pinch of salt because scientists, you know, they want their big flashy nature paper. So they're not going to report every single caveat or every little small problem that they saw. But what it suggests is that even though these first therapies are quite imperfect, they're not clearing all the senescent cells. And even though they're also, you know, on the other side, they're quite indiscriminate. So it's not as though we're only targeting particular tissues it looks like almost everything about um, these mice get better. So we can just, I mean, we're going to just have to cross our fingers and hope the same is true of humans. Um, there are some caveats that we do know. So for example, there are some parts of the body where you might not want to remove these senescent cells. And a really, a really good couple of examples actually is the heart and the brain. Mm. So we know that heart cells and brain cells don't get replaced throughout your life in the same way as other parts of your body. You know, you can literally be born with a neuron, so a brain cell, and die with that same brain cell. And so obviously, you know, if these cells aren't being replaced, we don't want to go removing them. We might want to try and fix whatever caused them to become senescent. But as I say, the good thing is, so far at least, it looks like these senolytic drugs have, you know, the, the pros 
far outweigh the cons. And as we get better at you know, understanding why cells turn senescent, how to identify senescent cells in different parts of the body, we'll be able to target these drugs even more precisely and make sure that we only take out the senescent cells we do want to take out and then hopefully you know, rescue the ones we don't or just leave them intact in some other way. So, I mean, why isn't there just a gene for longer life? It's interesting. There, there may be some genes that um, extend your lifespan uh, really dramatically. So I said that in worms, we saw this gene that where you can, you can actually make a change of a single DNA letter. It's, it's a worm genome is about 100 or 200, I can't remember the exact number, hundreds of millions of um, DNA letters long. So it's a huge, huge thing. Yet you can change a single letter in that genome and cause the worms to live 10 times longer. So rather than living two weeks, they can live, you know, 20 weeks or 30 weeks or something. And that's absolutely incredible, but probably it doesn't translate quite as simply to humans. And there was a lot of, you know, head scratching when these kinds of discoveries were made that scientists thought, oh, you know, worms, they only live a fortnight. They're a very simple system. A worm has exactly 959 cells in it, whereas humans are made up of, you know, tens of trillions of cells. Surely this sort of thing isn't going to transfer across. But something that made me quite excited that it might was actually a discovery in the last five or 10 years, which was uh, a gene called Serpine 1 which was found in a community of uh, the Old Order Amish community in, the, in North America. Um, it was discovered by this really rather roundabout route. A girl came into hospital in the 1980s with, uh, she'd bumped her head mm-hmm. and she, the bleeding just wouldn't stop, even though it was quite a minor injury. You know, she just kept on bleeding and bleeding and bleeding and doctors eventually managed to save her life. And um, there are quite a lot of different things called bleeding disorders that can cause blood not to clot normally when you have an injury. But as the, as the doctors sort of looked through this girl's uh, you know, medical history, as they looked through some of her genetics, they couldn't find any of the sort of classic bleeding disorders that they knew about. And eventually they did drill down and find this new gene, Serpine 1, and she had two altered copies of it. And the fact that you know, she had one from her mum, one from her dad. Hmm. And what that meant was that her blood wasn't able to clot normally. And um, there was a scientist who was particularly fascinated by this and wanted to study what was going on in the whole community. And they found that, you know, her parents had one copy each and they found that lots of other people in this old order Amish community had a single or two copies as well. And when they went back and looked through all of their family trees, what they found was that people who had a single copy of this gene, they didn't seem to have any trouble with uh, blood clotting. So that was the first good thing. So it it appears that you can get by with just one copy. But secondly, these people lived on average 10 years longer. Now, that's not a factor of 10, but it's a good start. I'd certainly take 10 extra healthy years. And they also found that they were less susceptible to things like diabetes. So it really does seem as though, you know, this gene in some way accelerates aging. Um, So it's going to be tough to identify these in humans. We've got a lot of genes. Mm. um, And obviously we can't, you know, the way these things are identified in worms is you just randomly mutate them and see what happens. And obviously that's not quite so ethically acceptable in humans, but it really does open the possibility that there are these single genes where we can make a single genetic change and potentially, you know, add a substantial amount to lifespan, which I think, you know, certainly came as a surprise to me. And I think it came as a surprise to a lot of scientists as well. I mean, doesn't nature already have a way to preserve our genes or at least our germ line? Because we might have a form of immortality, but it might not be an immortality of our own body. It's about the preservation of a germ line by just having children. Yeah. So the the phrase germline is is to sort of distinguish a certain type of cells in our body from what are called the somatic cells. They're the cells of the body. And so, you know, eggs and sperm are germ cells. And then when they combine, obviously you can make a baby. And the very fact that we're having this conversation right now actually tells you something rather incredible about us. And of course, all living humans, it's not us who are special. But what it means is that um, there's been an unbroken line of reproducing creatures all the way back, you know, potentially billions of years into into the past, into the Earth's past. And that means that, you know, three and a half billion years or something when the first life is thought to have emerged, we're obviously not 100% sure of the dates. But 
it's not immortality, but it's not a bad start. So clearly nature has got some way of making sure that those cells are very minimum, protected enough that, you know, we can have children, they, they can have children, they can have children. And it's not as though our species slowly ages over this time. So I think it's obvious that yeah, nature does have some tricks up her sleeve to try and prolong the life of cells and make sure that, you know, all the genetic information is preserved. The question is, can we adapt those tools and use them in our adult bodies? And, you know, it's, there's this quote that, it seems weird that nature is so capable of producing this incredibly complicated body and yet not able seemingly to do the much simpler task of maintaining that body once it's built. So the question is, can we work out, you know, with our technology, with, uh, you know, genetic modification, with drugs, with other kinds of treatments, whatever it is that we use, can we work out how to keep what we've got going? Well, there seems to be still so much excitement about longevity technology. And I, I guess, are there any latest breakthroughs in the sort of longevity medicine that we might soon see on the market? Is there a, is there a pill for longevity coming soon? I really think the best example of this is the senolytics because um, those the, the drugs they used in mice mm. are actually human drugs. They're human approved drugs already. So one's a chemo- chemotherapy drug called desatinib. And the other is uh, flavanol. So it's often, sometimes used as a nutritional supplement called quercetin. And the combination of these two things together seem to be the most effective to kill the senescent cells. So that's what they ended up using. So there are trials of that going on now. There are actually 20 or 30 biotech companies at the last count, which are trying to commercialize this stuff. And they're using a variety of approaches. Some of them are drugs. Some of them are special kind of packets of suicide gene effectively that will go in. And if a cell is senescent, activate a suicide program. Um, so we've got loads and loads of different approaches. And if I had to bet on something being the first, that would be a pretty good contender. I mean, are you, Andrew, are you a, are you a pill popper by any chance? You look at people like Ray Kurzweil, the transhumanist, and he has these stacks of drugs that he takes. I think he's been claimed as taking about 250 different forms of uh, pill and drug to try and help him live longer. Do you think that's actually an effective way to do it? I don't think at the moment we've got the evidence, to be honest. So there's mm. um, a, a lot of people take vitamin supplements and the best evidence that we have for vitamin supplements says they either have no effect or in fact, some of them slightly reduce your lifespan. We've got incredibly big, incredibly rigorous trials showing that they're, you know, unless you've got a specific nutritional deficiency, a vitamin deficiency that you might talk to your doctor about. Mm-hmm. And basically for most people, there's no point popping vitamin pills. And I think the same is probably true, at least for now, of any medical interventions. There are some things that we think might benefit. So there are things like metformin and rapamycin, which have been shown to extend lifespan in animals um, and that may extend lifespan in humans. Metformin is the thing I was just about to mention, actually, is my second contender for a near-term longevity drug. Um, But I just think at the moment, the evidence probably isn't quite there to go around recommending people take these things. And I think, especially in the case of metformin, there's a big trial that's going to happen. That's going to, you know, proper randomized clinical trials. That's where, you, you know, the gold standard of clinical research it's going to happen in the next year or you know it's, it's actually been delayed by coronavirus unfortunately it was supposed to have already started but it's going to be you know it's not going to be five years before we know whether or not metformin's a longevity drug or not so um although i can understand why people might want to take that gamble i personally think it's better just to sit it out and wait for the results because they're not going to be that far I mean, every so often we get a exciting sounding story come out of Silicon Valley that brings renewed attention to longevity technology. And in fact, Peter Thiel, uh, the investor, claimed that he wanted to inject young people's blood to live forever. And I'm surprised to read in your book that there's actually there's a little bit of truth behind that claim, isn't there? There is. I think the example of um, young blood transfusion is probably not going to stand up. And the, the, the sort of clinching thing of that for me is it started out with these rather macabre experiments. So let's, mm. let's sort of rewind before I explain why I don't think it's just going to work transfusing young blood. 
it started out with these macabre experiments where you get an old mouse and a young mouse and you sew them together and you sew them together in such a way as they actually end up sharing a blood supply mm. and this was an experiment that, that some of them were done in the 70s but they weren't really quite rigorous enough and the first sort of proper demonstration that this was doing something was in 2005 and what they showed was that the young mouse was effectively making the old mouse younger by being attached to it it was rejuvenating the stem cells inside that mouse. And that meant that if you gave the old mouse a little muscle injury, then it would recover more quickly than an old mouse that was attached to another old mouse or just an old mouse that was you know, scurrying around on its own. The problem with sort of making the analogy then to young blood mm. is that uh, there's a, there are a whole load of things going on in that experiment. It's not as clean as you might like. So when the mice are uh, sutured together they've got completely shared organ systems. That means that the old mouse is benefiting from the young mouse's heart. It's benefiting from the young mouse's lungs, which means it might be getting better oxygenated blood all around its system. Mm. Um, it's got better kidneys, better liver that are clearing all the toxins out of that blood at the same time. Um, the, the sort of most bizarre suggestion, I actually spoke to the two scientists who did this, the Arena and Mike Conboy. And what they said was um, that, that they noticed that the old mouse was effectively being dragged around the cage by the younger mouse because younger mice are known to be more active. And so there's a sort of enforced exercise program. And obviously we all know how good exercise is for our health. Uh-huh. So, you know, there are just all these different things going on that could be causing the old mouse to be getting benefits above and beyond simply the transfer of blood. And the clinching experiment in 2014, they tried injecting young plasma into old mice and they basically found it didn't extend their lifespan. It didn't make them any healthier. So I think the young plasma idea of just literally having young, uh, young blood transfusions is too simple what's really cool though is that they've then really extended that work they've gone far beyond the heterochronic parabiosis ideas they've started uh looking at drugs that might be able to mimic its effects and all that sort of stuff and i think that although that was a really good sort of proof of concept it's just another way to demonstrate that aging is malleable i think ultimately the way we're going to sort of capitalize on that research isn't going to be by direct directly injecting young blood which i guess is a relief for all the young people listening (laughs) also i'm not sure how i feel having a stroppy teen surgically attached to me following me around 24 24 7 but but there are companies aren't there like ambrosia and in peter Tour's case it was ambrosia that was promising this injection of uh, of young blood and even google had a company called calico so there, uh, we're beginning to see these these emergence of these longevity technology companies. What are your thoughts on some of those? I think it's great news in the sort of big picture. I think it's um, it shows that there's some real excitement around the field, and you know there are a lot of people. When Google started pouring money into Calico, they thought, "Wow, this is you know this is fantastic. Maybe mm-hmm. aging is going to be a solved problem because finally we've got enough money looking into the research." Um, Calico, it's hard to know. I think. The sort of aggregate opinion is it's probably been a bit of a disappointment, but that that's tempered by the fact that we we don't really know what they're doing. They've been quite secretive. They haven't released a huge amount of results, mm-hmm. um, so it's very hard to know. You know, may, maybe it's a disappointment, or maybe they're sitting on something enormous and they just haven't told us yet. Um, I think although it's cool to see all this investment in the sort of biotech and the venture capital side of things, what we really need right now is more investment in the basic research. And that's because there are some investable opportunities, you know, things like Senolytics. There are going to be some companies that, you know, I very much hope will create successful Senolytic treatments and they're going to have a huge potential market. But there's still an awful lot of this stuff that just needs the hard graft of doing the basic research at the beginning. And if you look at how much we put into basic research into aging, it's just absolutely minuscule. Um, the US is the, the place it's easiest to get numbers because the US has a National Institute for Aging. So it's got a specific research funding body, government funding body. Uh, dedicated to researching aging and the fact that that is such a unique thing in the US is itself a problem because I tried to find out similar numbers for the UK and had a very hard time but then if you drill down into the NIA's budget um, there's a sort of in-joke in biogerontology that NIA actually stands for National Institute on Alzheimer's because their neuroscience division gets the vast majority of their funding and if you then look at how much goes into the basic biology of aging 
I think it's a few hundred million dollars a year. Um, and so, to sort of put that into some sort of context, the US spends four trillion a year on healthcare. So a few hundred million, not billion, but four trillion on healthcare. So you realise that, mm. and uh, uh, you know, quite apart from any of that, the biology of ageing part of the NIA is looking at the, is sort of investigating the mechanisms. Only a fraction of that is looking into developing treatments. So we've got probably somewhere in the region of a 10,000th of the US's spending on healthcare is going into researching ageing, even though a huge fraction of that $4 trillion is going into the chronic diseases of ageing. So those two numbers, you know, they, they just doesn't make any sense. Even from an economic standpoint, you can imagine developing therapies that would save huge, huge amounts of money in health and social care. But the US isn't doing it. Other countries around the world aren't doing it either. Mm. And I think although this is going to be an enormous industry, because it's going to be something, you know, these drugs are going to have a potential market of every living human. We've really got to put some money, not in, just into the sort of biotech side of things, but also into the basic research that's going to give us the ideas that we can spin out into companies. I mean, it's impossible to talk about aging without mentioning the the wonderful wizard who is Aubrey de Grey. And he's made grand proclamations that the first human beings who will live to a thousand year, years old have already been born today. But the thing with grand statements like that is it, it helps that sort of cause. It helps draw attention and it helps draw funding to the cause. So do, do you think statements like that from Aubrey, do you think they help the aging science movement or do you think they perhaps hinder it? I think it's a really difficult one. I think actually mm. he's decided to sort of change his tack in recent years as well. That was the sort of stuff that got him some big press back in the sort of 2000s when he was yep. first starting out trying to make a bit of noise about this stuff. But since then, he's retreated to a slightly more moderate position. I think that's probably for the best because the fact is that when you talk to people, you know, often... Uh, as a result of talking about my book, a lot of people ask you about immortality. They ask you about, won't you get bored? What's it going to be like having a society of you know, loads of people living to a thousand years old? Uh -huh. um, and actually, you know, what, what really excites people, what really excites me is the health side of things. And so Aubrey has started talking a lot more about the health benefits, a lot more about dementia, a lot more about cancer, a lot about all these diseases that we're going to end up preventing. So I think it's a really, it's a really difficult thing. You've got to try and tailor your message to your audience. And also you have got to have... Um, you've got to have some realism. And also, I think that statement came with quite a lot of caveats. And Aubrey, mm. you know, if you asked him about that, would explain how, you know, it requires a certain amount of research funding. And there's, there's only a 50% chance we'll make it to that stage, you know, based on a certain amount of research funding. Whereas obviously, when you talk to the press, a lot of those caveats can get stripped away. So um, yeah, it's, it's a really, really tricky one, because what you need to do, obviously, is the, the most important thing in aging, I think, is to get the word out, is to get people engaged with this, to get them to realise this isn't some kooky sci-fi mad thing. It's something that even if, you know, even if we fall far short of thousand year lifespans, it's going to be of huge economic and social benefit to people who are alive today. And so my preference is to focus on the much sort of nearer term, much less weird sounding benefits. The, the interesting thing I've always found with Aubrey, and I, I first met him when I was 18 years old in the in the famous Eagle Pub in Cambridge, and uh, I sat and watched him drink about six or seven beers <laughs> and talk about living forever, which seems like cognitive cognitive dissonance to me. But <laughs> I think the, the, the incredibly sort of interesting thing about Aubrey is not just his enthusiasm for anti-aging, but the fact that he developed these strategies for engineering negligible senescence. And, and you look at some of these strategies in the book and I just wonder what your thoughts are on something like SENS. I think um, it's a really powerful framework in terms of thinking about how we're going to treat these things and I think actually the hallmarks of ageing this paper that was done in 2013 is a in some ways along quite similar lines. And I think that's just, it, it, it's a much more useful way of breaking down the problem into smaller problems, each of which we can potentially individually solve. Um, a lot of the ideas in sense are really 
they're, they're still difficult to pass judgment on because they're going to require technologies that don't yet exist or that, you know, at a very minimum, they haven't been proven. So, for example, to take um, the thing that probably he has been most instrumental in driving forward which is an idea to try and prevent the aging of our mitochondria, which is the power plants inside our cells. His idea to prevent them from um, impacting on our aging is to back up a copy of their DNA. So mitochondria, the only part of our cell outside of the nucleus that has its own DNA. And he thinks that the DNA damage to mitochondria is what causes these problems that they experience with age. And that by putting a backup copy inside the nucleus, we'll be able to obviate that problem, basically. We'll be able to leave our mitochondria functioning entirely, you know, the same as they would in youth. And... Uh, the Sense Research Foundation, his foundation, have managed to get, I think, the furthest in doing this. They've managed to get all 13 of the mitochondrial genes uh, being expressed in the nucleus, and they managed to get them to the mitochondria and demonstrate that on some level they work. The problem is this is on cells in a dish, and obviously it's going to be a huge thing to try and transfer that up to full-size, you know, living, breathing mm. organisms. Um So I think it was a, it's a really exciting idea, and it's really good to break the problem down into these various... Um, various you know particular chunks that we can actually do research on but there's still a lot that remains to be proved about sense and actually you know a lot that remains to be proved about any attempt to solve every single one of these hallmarks of aging as well um but the key contribution in my mind is breaking it down in this way it's allowing us to tackle the problems one at a time rather than seeing aging as this sort of massive messy um in a process of slowly breaking down here are in his in his categorization seven different problems that we need to solve and maybe that's not everything but it's a damn good start i mean the other interesting thing about aubrey is all his predictions are within his own lifespan and i do wonder whether that's deliberate as a way to to generate funding from you know very rich individuals who potentially want to live forever so there might be uh, there might be something very strategic about that strategy yeah and all as i said all of his predictions do actually come with these percentage chances. So I think that, you know, he's trying to hedge his bets a bit. He says, and, and they also come with the caveat of with sufficient funding, which again, you know, is a bit of a malleable thing. <laughs> Give us um, money. I, It'll happen. I, yeah, <laughs> I think it's fair to say that, I, you know, I think both those things are a fair way to try and look at things. The fact is that if we sink a load of money into this stuff... I would find it absolutely mind-blowingly unlucky if literally none of the sense strategies, none of the ideas that I lay out in the mm. book came to anything at all and we didn't see some kind of improvement in human health and lifespan. Of course, you have to accept that is a possibility. Biology, medicine, they're really, really hard. So many drugs, you know, work in mice but then fail somehow for often for no obvious reason when we try and translate them to humans. So this whole thing is very probabilistic and I think, you know, his predictions are like we've got a 50% chance of... Um, having what he calls longevity escape velocity, this one year of life expectancy being added every year in 25 years. It's very, very hard to you know assess how accurate that is, but he's not saying it's definitely going to happen. I think he still says there's a 10% chance it won't happen within a century. And whether or not you subscribe to those exact numerical predictions and whether you're not, you know, think it's plausible it's going to happen in our lifetimes or in the next generation's lifetimes, I think this idea of you know we've got a certain percentage chance of making it with a certain level of funding, that's the way to look at it. Rather than, as it's often sort of boiled down and simplified, it's going to happen in 25 years because that's just not how science works. I mean, one of the problems is the medical and scientific community, it just feels like they're biased against aging, that the idea of dying of old age is just considered normal, unremarkable by the scientific community. Yeah, I think that's a huge problem. Um, I've actually had that happen in my own research. When I was working at the Crick Institute, I was doing some work uh, using machine learning to try and predict from patients' medical records when they were likely to have a heart attack. And I was working with a doctor on this. And at one point, I made a very simple model uh, to try and compare against my machine learning model, sort of as a baseline to say, you know, if, if we can't do better than this, we're not getting anywhere. And that was literally to say, 
the older you are, the more likely you are to have a heart attack. And I uh, spent a bit of time sort of going into the details of that in the paper draft that I wrote. And this doctor just said, well, you know, there's no point writing this paragraph. Everyone knows that older people are more likely to have a heart attack. It's completely non-news. And I thought, I mean, yes, we do know that, but isn't it remarkable that doctors are so willing to discard this, you know, the, the mm. single largest predictive factor in their model. They go, oh, that's not interesting. Let's have a look at something else entirely, you know, something else that only explains 10% of what's going on. Whereas this huge, huge predictive factor, we just ignore, we just put to one side. And I think that is really reflected in um, the education system as well. If you talk to an undergrad biologist, you know, someone can get a great degree from a great university and they might not have any lectures at all on the biology of aging. And it's certainly true of doctors. My wife's a doctor. Um, when I first started talking to her about this stuff, uh, she thought I was a bit crazy. It's certainly not something they cover in their, uh, you know, in their training. To the extent that they do understand gerontology, it's, it's more from a sort of geriatrics point of view, the sort of complexities, the social difficulties of dealing with patients with huge numbers of different comorbidities, taking loads of different drugs. So, you know, it's a very sort of practical um, way of looking at things, but it doesn't explore the idea that ageing is the underlying root cause of these things. It sort mm. of ignores it because it's so big. It just it ironically becomes invisible. It feels like we would just learn so much more if we were allowed to do autopsies of our grandparents. Yeah, so something that I found while researching the book, there's um, there's a particularly, um, there's, there's a cause of death that's thought perhaps to be the single largest cause of death in supercentenarians. That's people who make it to beyond the age of 110. Mm. And it's called transthyretin amyloidosis. The details aren't particularly important, but it's a, it's a sort of protein clumping that particularly affects the cardiovascular system. And this was discovered by doing exactly as you say, autopsies of incredibly old people. But the problem is that, you know, if someone dies in their 80s, um, we commonly don't do an autopsy because, you know, it's pretty unremarkable in some sense that they've died. You know, we, we probably know basically the cause of death that we can write on a death certificate without cutting them open. And while I don't necessarily think we should cut open every single 80-something who dies, it would certainly give us a much deeper insight into what kinds of conditions not only they died of, but what they died with. And subsequently, like looking at this transthyretin amyloidosis, it's been found that it's much more common in people who are in their 80s and 90s than we previously thought. So although maybe it's not a cause of death, it's sort of giving us a heads up that if we do manage to uh, treat or cure some of these other problems that cause aging, you know, transthyretin amyloidosis is waiting for us in our 110 so that's something that we'd definitely like to have on our radar. And I think by doing more autopsies of older people, we'd be able to we'd potentially be able to discover more of these things and sort of catch them before they kill us. I mean, it sounds like there's there's more and more ways of keeping the body healthy. But what about the mind? Because the, what about things like mental illness? Even if our bodies survive, will our brains be able to? Will, will we see extreme forms of depression or perhaps anxiety or Alzheimer's? As you previously said, we are born and we die with many of the cells in our brain that, that we were born with. Well, the good news is that all the uh, all the other causes of you know, all the causes of aging are basically the same. Whether you're looking at wrinkles, whether you're looking at cancer, whether you're looking at heart disease, or whether you're looking at brain aging and dementia, although the sort of balance of which are the most significant will change from uh, from place to place. Fundamentally, if we can treat senescent cells, if we can treat problems with mitochondria, if we can treat DNA damage, these are all things that affect every single part of our body. So we would be mind blowingly unlucky to come up with a set of treatments that somehow preserved our entire sort of physical body in perfect pristine conditions, and yet let our brain completely deteriorate um that said i think it's obviously really important that we do specifically concentrate on the aging of the brain because i'd far mm. rather have a youthful aware brain you know without dementia free from any mental impairment and a slightly more ragged body than the other way around um, uh, so i think it's, agree. It, it's crucially important i think more sort of neuroscience and you know generally looking at the brain and how it ages and how we can tackle that is crucially important as well
Well, when we talk about putting more money into these sorts of technologies, it just feels like we already have radical life-extending technologies. And those technologies are sanitation, education, regulation, contraception, universal healthcare, clean water, participatory economics, participatory political systems. I mean, instead of putting money into stopping something natural like aging, shouldn't we put our attention towards these societal things? I'm going to take issue with your characterization of aging as natural and therefore by implication you're saying good. And I think if you were to go back, you know, 150 years, uh-huh. these things like infection before we had sanitation, that was a natural process. And, you know, before we had germ theory, we didn't even understand, you know, even in the 1830s or something, we didn't understand what was causing these uh, diseases. We didn't understand it was bacteria. We didn't understand it was viruses. And so what that means is that, you know, you could have made exactly this argument 150 years ago, but you'd be talking about tuberculosis rather than aging. Um, I think... I want to do whatever will minimise human suffering. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that nature, we certainly haven't evolved. You know, as, as I said, evolution is reproduction of the fittest. We've been optimised to be reproducing machines, to produce babies, to you know, survive long enough and pop out some kids, basically. So evolution isn't optimised to make... You know, evolution has no ethics. Evolution doesn't care about you. All it cares about is you as a vehicle for sperm or a vehicle for babies. And so I think you know what we've got with our technology is the ability to go beyond what natural selection has imbued us with and in exactly the same way as we've tried to treat um infectious disease and exactly the same way as we tried to treat the individual diseases of aging we should go after the root cause of the biggest amount of human suffering now so we've managed to extend lifespans in loads of ways in the past but the frontier now is the treatment of aging I mean, surely you've heard the critique that ageing and death is key to what it means to be human doesn't death have meaning I really don't think so. And the reason I don't think so is that, as I said earlier, I think that we live our lives, maybe not always day to day, but at least day to day, week to week, month to month, year to year. Like I'm saving for a pension, but I'm not at many points in my life considering its whole sweep. And in, you know, particularly, I'm not considering the fact that one day I will die when I make a decision. So, you know, when I decided to write a book or, you know, if you decide whether or not you're going to ask someone out on a date or you're going to go for a job promotion or whatever it is you're thinking about, you're not thinking I'm doing this because I'm going to be dead at the age of 80 or the age of 90. That's not factoring into your thought process. And again, you could make very similar arguments when people are dying in the 30s and 40s of infectious disease. You could say, oh, you know, without that motivation, maybe these people wouldn't have produced their great works of fiction or whatever it was. The fact is, I think most people live most of their lives on a relatively short-term basis. You know, you're thinking about what you're going to do that day. You're thinking about where you're going to go on holiday in a few months' time. You might have sort of a five-year plan for your career or where you want to live. But honestly, you know, given the unpredictability of life, none of us can make a full life plan. You know, you couldn't get to the age of 18 and just sort of delimit it all out into exactly how it's going to look, quite apart from anything else, because our lives are getting longer. So I, I, I just can't understand this idea that death gives life meaning. And I think it's a, a backwards explanation to try and justify something that, you know, d- death can be scary because mm-hmm. you're going to cease to exist. You're going to, it's going to cause a lot of grief to your friends, your family, and to try and rationalize the existence of this scary and potentially quite horrible thing in the world. We try and imbue it with some sort of philosophical significance that I just don't really think it has. I mean, is a long life necessarily a good life? My, my favorite way to annoy the longevity advocates is to say that I want to die at say 69, but with all my mental faculties and and but live a really really good life because living 69 years of incredible experiences versus just having to be on the planet for 200 years living a very banal existence surely you'd pick the shorter life and i do wonder in the future if if this sort of technology is available and is rolled out to the population whether we'll have 
cultist deathists who will go, you know what? I just want to live fast and die young and young will be like 80 by then and, and long life will be 200 and it'll be a tragic life because you're just running the clock out until you finally have to leave the planet. So will death become, I guess, more tragic if we cure aging? Do you, do you think we can live fast and die old? Uh, will living longer make us increasingly risk averse, perhaps? I think um, what I would what I would think about is, you know, say, say you're 69, say, say it's the day before your 69th birthday and you know that you're <laughs> going to immediately keel over in some you know, wonderful, painless death, having lived an amazing life. You're, you'll presumably still be having an amazing life that mm. age 68 and 364 days. So why wouldn't you want to have another day of that or another month of that? And then, you know, why at the end of that month, wouldn't you want to have another month? And again, it's the question of sort of, you know, even if you were to be immortal, you're living the immortality month by month. There's still going to be loads to experience. Um, I was thinking perhaps in a slightly glib way about this, but if you think about the countries in the world, say I were to visit a country every year, it would take me almost two centuries to visit every country. And obviously that's a bit of a stupid thing to say because there's more than one interesting thing per country. And if you think about the number of films there are to watch, the number of books there are to read, the amount of music there is to experience. And as we all live longer, you know, musicians and artists, they're going to get better. They're going to have longer careers over which to build up their skills, to reflect, perhaps to you know, develop entirely new art forms. Technology is always changing. You know, we're going to have space travel. We're going to have virtual reality that's completely impossible for us to conceive in 50 or 100 years time i just can't imagine running out of things that i'd want to do so so basically andrew what you're saying is the reason you want to live long is so you can watch all of netflix the entire thing if i can get on the completionist <laughs> i wonder what happens when you've watched it all i wonder if they send you a uh, a notification <laughs> or a surprise or there's some party or secret secret content i mean it, it's so easy to talk about living long but if we got to the point where we could start to choose how long we want to live, then surely the people who are advocating for longevity also have to advocate for euthanasia, the ability to select when you want to die. Because if you can just stay constantly negligible senescence ad infinitum, surely you want to take that power into your hands and go, you know what, maybe my birthday was this date, but maybe I'm going to start planning for my death day where I'll invite all my friends around and they'll jump out from behind a sofa and stab me in the back and, and it'll all be over. Celebration. Um, surely we need to talk about euthanasia and what it means to have a good death in the same way we talk about what it means to have a good life. I guess we could. And it's, it's, it's just really hard to imagine from our standpoint, you know, with our fixed lifespans, with this period of degeneration at the end, mm. um, and I think this is something that we need to sort of have a conversation about as a society, if and when we get to that stage. Because the fact is, you know, the first treatments for aging, they might add five healthy years to human lifespan. They're certainly not going to be talking about immortality. Um, but if we do get to a point where, where we're negligibly senescent, you know, maybe you'll just want to take 100 years off. You might want to get, you know, cryogenically frozen if we've got that technology by that point. And, uh, you know, you can be re reawakened in a century's time and you had a bit of a rest or, you know, when something, something you've been waiting for particularly has come to pass. Um, I think it's just so... I think it's basically impossible because, you know, sometimes people, they ask things like, won't you get bored? And I can reel off, you know, you know, if your friends and your family are still alive, you've still got loads of social interaction, you've still got all these things you want to do, films to watch, blah, blah, blah. The fact is, I just don't know what it'll be like being 400. And the fact is that nobody does. No one knows, you know, maybe you'll be crushed by the weight of a lifetime's memories by the time you get to 207. And that's just an immutable, you know, physical limit on the human mind. Um, my guess is that none of this is going to be a significant problem. It's actually going to be more mundane than we imagine. 
you know, we imagine some total transformation of the human condition. Actually, all we're going to find is that there's a lot less suffering and people are living a lot longer and everyone's still, you know, facing basically the same trials and tribulations as we do in current life. But if we do get to a point where there are loads and loads of people who are youthful and therefore not dying, I'd far rather be killed in some sort of painless euthanasia than I would by, you know, stopping taking my anti-aging medication and degenerating over a period of a few decades into a position where I've got horrible heart disease and cancer and dementia and finally, you know, get taken by some combination of those diseases in the middle of the night. I mean, apart from the obvious problem of overpopulation, and we're not going to bring up overpopulation because I know you're asked about it constantly, and I know there's ways in which we can we can deal with the overpopulation problem. In actual fact, it's it's not quite as bad as we think. But from a cultural perspective, German physicist Max Planck is credited as saying, "Science advances one." funeral at a time. And mm-hmm. similar, similarly, Thomas Kuhn argued that true revolutionary progress happens only when a generation dies. So death is almost needed for generational change, for, for progress, scientific progress to occur. So don't we need death to ensure that new ideas emerge? Don't we need death to ensure there's a new generation of scientists who might think of new ways to extend lifespan, for example? Yeah, I looked into this a little bit when I was writing the book and uh, and unfortunately it didn't quite make it in because it was was just too many words in the end. But what you find is that there there is some evidence for this. Like there's some evidence that... um that there was some research that was done looking at um, the impact of people who are research stars, they called them. So people had a, who had a really, really unusual high number of very highly cited scientific publications. And they looked at these people when they had premature deaths. So when they didn't just, you know, retire and die of old age, when they, they died of something else, you know, in, the, in, the, in their prime effectively. And what they found was it did have an effect on the scientific field. It allowed a load more it basically allowed a thousand flowers to bloom it allowed a, a load of sort of younger less influential scientists to come out and do more new research but they found that actually the other effect it had was to have a negative effect on the particular sort of paradigm or field of research that that research star had previously been looking into mm-hmm. and depending on the field of science actually i think you could argue it multiple ways which of those is that you know should we go really really deep into a single topic that's of you know huge currents that's really trendy at the moment or is it better to look into a, a sort of wider range of things it will, that answer will vary by field it will vary by the sort of progress of that field and what that really illustrated to me was that this is a problem that we need to solve anyway, potentially. It's certainly something you know, science policy people should be thinking about, because if they can discern this effect within current human lifespans, like shorter than the current research career, because these people's research careers were being cut short by them dying, yeah. maybe we need to do something about this already. And this is, this is something that really recurs with these um, sort of ethical and moral quandaries that associate with curing ageing, is that it's something we're going to have to solve anyway. And, um, you know, because if you look at population, for example, one of the big issues with that is that if you look at, you know, for example, climate change, if you look at our carbon footprints, the richest billion or so people on the planet Earth, depending on how you count it, is a bit complicated, but they, they emit something like half of carbon emissions globally. So if we want to bring the other six or seven billion people up to a Western standard of living, we're going to have to come up with ways of producing that standard of living with a far smaller footprint on the Earth, a West crude. And so actually, you know, adding a few more people because their people are dying less frequently is going to be a much smaller contribution to that massive change that we're going to need than people think. And it's very, very similar with this, you know, funeral by funeral thing i actually was really convinced looking at that research maybe we need term limits on professors so you know you can only be a professor of physics for a certain length of time and then after that point you need to change career you know you need to go and become a musician or change field to biology or just do something that's completely different in order to free up some space because it's happening within current research careers it's you know it's happening before we all live to 150 
You're basically arguing for the death of tenure. That needs to get removed before the uh, the death of. I mean, in fact, the only way PhDs can get a job right now is that the professor who has tenure does pop his clogs and and, and move on. And it's not so weird because if you look at politics, you know we have term limits. We have mm-hmm. you know elections every four or five years. We have you know, presidents in the US can only serve two terms. It's not so crazy, and yet. Obviously, you know, for various cultural, historical reasons, that's not something we do in academia. Maybe it's something we should. Interesting mm. question. But what about lack of genetic diversity? Because if we have the same sorts of people living for longer periods of time, what we're essentially doing is fixing, not repairing, but freezing, fixing our current mm. genetic state. And wouldn't that leave us open to new forms of virus, bacteria and disease? If we, we don't have a recycling of the population every now and then, surely we, we won't evolve or, or, or get better. We'll, we'll be fixed as we were 400 years ago, and that will leave us open to anything else in the environment that may choose to cause us some harm. It's a really interesting argument as to whether that factored to some extent into the evolution of ageing and death, actually, because mm. as you, exactly as you say, an organism that doesn't age or doesn't die can't evolve because those um, th- those animals, at least the parent animals, will keep on living forever and ever and ever. And if their environment changes around them, well, they're doomed, aren't they? And you've got to hope that they've, they've had some kids with a bit more genetic diversity. I think the question with humans is quite different because the fact is we've already transcended evolution in a number of ways. Mm. There are people who have, you know, what would have been fatal genetic diseases who are now, you know, living in among us living full, happy lives, which is a great thing. There are people who would have died in childbirth. There are people who would have died of infectious diseases as young children, who again, they're just, you know, they're, they're, they're living as adults. They're contributing to society. They're, you know, composing great works of music and all those different things that humans can do. Um, and I think evolving your way out of problems is a really, really painfully slow process. Like imagine we had to evolve our way out of the current coronavirus pandemic. The fact is it would have affected affected everyone on earth before we've had a couple of generations in order to try and, you know, weed out the people who are going to die and people who are therefore going to be immune. Mm. So it's just, I, I don't think evolution is, is a viable solution to most of the problems that humanity is going to face in the future. I think we've got to get to a point where our technology is the way that we succeed because otherwise, you know, a new virus could emerge and kill us all. And it would, it would be generations and generations and generations before civilization recovered. So, you know, obviously vaccines, obviously surveillance, all these different ways of you know, sorting out viruses are far better than the glacial selection of natural evolution. I mean, the problem with these sorts of conversations is that it assumes that there's always been something wrong with the human, that thing being wrong, being aging. And is there a danger in seeing the human condition as a sort of problem that needs to be solved? I don't think so, because I think, again, this is sort of, a, this is called in philosophy, the naturalistic fallacy, the mm-hmm. idea that just because something's natural, it must be good. And again, that the, the clearest rebuttal to that is just look at infection, look at smallpox, this horrible disease that killed, a, you know, a huge millions and millions of people over human history, maybe even billions. You know, I, don't, I, don't, mm-hmm. I don't know the statistics. And it killed them in a really horrible way. And it was incredibly contagious. There's just nothing good about that. There's nothing good about that fact of nature. I mean, if you look at the the solar system we live in, it, it doesn't care about us. It could smash us with an asteroid any day and eradicate the whole of civilization, eradicate all life on Earth. We're just incredibly fortunate that we're in this sort of benign Goldilocks zone around our star that allows us to live. So nature is a, you know, at an absolute minimum, it doesn't care. And it's not difficult to look around and think actually actively wants us to die. So <laughs> I'm quite chilled about, you know, trying to make the absolute best of what we've got and improve upon what natural selection has given us. Well, let me ask the question in a slightly different way, because Andrew, your background is in computational biology. And I wonder, does that affect and impact the way you think about human 
beings? Do you see us as computational machines? I mean, Aubrey's being accused of the same issue. He sees human bodies comparable to cars that can have their, their parts replaced. So does that lens on what a human being is? Doesn't, doesn't that create a dangerous circumstance? Isn't that sometimes a problematic metaphor? There are two ways of thinking about that. I think as, as, um, as physical beings, we are subject to the laws of nature. So, you know, mm. at, the, at the lowest level of the laws of physics, they then integrate somehow into the laws of chemistry, which then somehow integrate into the laws of biology. And ultimately, I think we are going to have computational models for humans. It might not be in 10 years, it might not be in 50 years, but at some point we're going to have a computer simulation advanced enough to fully understand the ins and outs of human biology. You know, human biology is really complicated, but at the end of the day, we've only got 20,000 genes. There are only maybe 100,000 proteins inside a human. Those are big numbers. That's not going to be a cinch. You can't just, you know, do that on your laptop, but there is ultimately going to be a point at which we can simulate that in a computer. I'm absolutely confident of that. However, to think about us as sort of moral, sentient, conscious beings, I don't know where we are with consciousness. It's not my field of expertise at all, but I, I, I'm not, you know, it's, it's far from clear exactly what consciousness is, exactly what it means to be self-aware, exactly what it means to be a being, you know, worthy of moral consideration. And I think that you can understand that humans are in a sense, machines that can be fixed when it comes to illness, when it comes to suffering, but we're more than machines when it comes to what we're capable of thinking and feeling. I mean, a lot of this stuff might just be around the corner, but it might be a little further away. We just don't quite know yet. So what can we do today to live long enough so that potentially we could live forever? Well, you can read my book. I've got a chapter of health advice. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> the thing that I think, the thing that's really surprised me about aging biology is well, it's, it's encouraged me um, to sort of look after my own health in a variety of different ways. Mm -hmm. The first of which we sort of already alluded to, which is this idea that the longer you live, the more likely you are to live to benefit from more technologies. And the second way in which it's helped is that by understanding the aging process, it really uh, imbues old health advice or sort of classic health advice with a new meaning because it shows you that a lot of the sort of boring stuff that we know we should do, like eating the right sort of food, not eating too much of it, not smoking, exercising, these things legitimately slow down the aging process in quite a real sense. Mm -hmm. And so it's, you know, it's really encouraged me to watch my diet a bit more, make sure I go for a run a bit more often than perhaps I used to. Um, and then finally, it allows you to illuminate perhaps unconventional bits of health advice that you wouldn't expect. So to give one example, um, brushing your teeth is something that can increase your longevity, your healthy lifespan. And the reason we think that's the case is because, you know, although you might not think there's a direct connection between tooth decay and heart disease, for example, studies have shown that people who have better dental hygiene have better cardiovascular health. And when this was first uncovered in the 1990s, there was a lot of skepticism from scientists because this sounds like a classic example of what scientists say correlation doesn't mean causation. So that means you get an association between two things, but actually one isn't causing the other. There's some third factor. So let's take that example of um, tooth decay and heart disease. Mm -hmm. what you could find is that people who are, you know, people who are poorer, they've got less time to invest in their fitness. They've got less time to invest in cooking good food. They've also got less time to look after their teeth. They can't afford their dental bills. So all of this combines together to mean their health is worse and their dental health is worse. So they get heart attacks and they have, you know, bad teeth and bad gums. And that would mean that there was no causality. You know, there's no benefit to brushing your teeth. It's just that people who have, who are bad in one respect also have problems in the other for, you know, unavoidable reasons. However, as we've understood more about the underlying biology, it's looking increasingly likely that there is some kind of causal connection. Um, and that connection is thought to be what's called chronic inflammation. So inflammation is the idea that um, is, the, is the process by which your body responds to threats. So, um, so you get an infection. 
you'll get inflammatory molecules being given off at the site of that infection, which are basically your cells calling for help. They're saying to the immune system, come on over here, there's stuff going on, you know, can you come and clear out this infection or help us heal this wound or whatever the problem is. But the problem with age is that you often get what's called chronic inflammation. In fact, the um, the toxic chemicals I alluded to earlier with the senescent cells are inflammatory chemicals by and large. So they're chemicals that sort of, um, they, they spur the immune system into a heightened low level of alert, they're sort of constant fizzing and buzzing of panic which makes it less effective at its other jobs and also directly accelerates aging. So imagine in your mouth, you've got gum disease. These uh, bacteria that are attacking your gums, it's very, very hard for your immune system to eradicate those. So there's this Mm. sort of constant low-level skirmish going on inside your mouth, emitting all these inflammatory molecules. And what that means is it's increasing your likelihood of things like heart disease. And in fact, we think it could even be related to cognitive decline. So if you look at the plaques, the sort of bundles of um, molecules that are found inside people's body, is people's brains, I should say, when they have dementia, then sometimes we find these bacteria embedded in the plaques. Now, at the moment, again, it's not clear if correlation and causation are going on here. You know, are the bacteria actively driving the dementia? Are they just managing to get in there because the brain is so badly damaged? But the fact is, I think the evidence is suggestive enough that for your lifespan, as well as to minimise, you know, visits to the dentist, it's worth brushing your teeth. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, Andrew, this book has a lot to answer for because you've certainly (laughs) guilted me into being slightly healthy, especially during this time of lockdown where it's it's so much harder to to move and to to do these healthy things especially when you're tired as I am to a corner of a room recording recording podcasts but there's so many health studies out there there's so many ways we can potentially improve our health how do how do we do a better job individually of looking critically at scientific research and health advice and deciding what's good for us because one week it feels like coffee is going to kill us and the next week it feels like it's going to help us live till 90. So, you know, all of these things are so confusing as a a member of the general public. How do we do a better job at looking critically at this research and advice? So I think the first thing to say is that when you do find these studies that are contradictory, often that's a sort of warning sign that the effect one way or the other probably isn't that large. So, you know, if you've got a study that shows coffee extends life, a study that shows it it makes things worse, then the truth is probably somewhere in there, but it's probably not a very big effect because, you know, often scientists in good faith trying to reproduce a particular result, if they get it going completely the other way, it's probably just quite a small effect and it's going to be very hard to tie down. The other thing you can do is try and look uh, in the scientific literature, not at these individual small studies, so particularly with you know various diets or supplements, you know you might find that a study um, only involves twenty people or something like that, and that means it's going to be very hard to generalise. Particularly because those um, those small groups of people are often chosen for a specific reason. Perhaps they're you know people who are overweight in a particular way, or they're people who've got a particular condition, and so it might not necessarily or benefit everyone in the entire population of different ethnicities or you know having very different health backgrounds, different ages is another thing we often mm-hmm. neglect. They're often you know only tested in young people, so does that really apply to people who are in their sixties and seventies? The best sort of health advice to follow, I think, is that which is supported by the sort of gold standard of scientific research, which is something called a systematic review, which is where it's not an individual study, but where some scientists have searched the entire literature in a systematic way. They've tried to find every single study into a particular topic. And then they've said, okay, if we aggregate all of this evidence, can we say that it goes one way or the other? And where where you can say that, then you can be pretty confident in the conclusions. And that's the sort of evidence that I've tried to draw upon in the health advice in the book. I mean, I'm one of those people who only really listens to my body when something's wrong, when something's hurting, when when it feels like, oh, blimey, I should probably pay attention to that thing. Uh, but what we're talking about with 
anti-aging or, or ageless medicine is, is preventative medicine. And how do we culturally get people used to the idea that they've got to take medicine for diseases that they don't already have? I think it's going to be easier than it might sound the way you've sort of posed that as the question, because <laughs> people already take a huge number of nutri nutritional supplements. You know, mm -hmm. If you look in the US, I think it's over half of US adults say they regularly take vitamin supplements. So and you know, th these are things that don't work, basically, by and large. <laughs> um, so you've got this huge fraction of the population who are clearly interested enough in their health to take a supplement, even though, you know, actually, we know it's not going to have a great deal of effect. So I think if you could present people with medicines that actually work, you know, yeah. demonstrably going to improve their healthy lifespan, I think it's going to be easier than people think. Well, how this is rolled out is quite interesting to me because do you think the ability to live longer will eventually be seen as a human enhancement? And if so, do you think it'll be a selective enhancement or a therapeutic enhancement? In other words, will it be a choice to live longer or will it become a universal basic human right? I hope the latter, because I think at the end of the day, this is about mm. postponing ill health. It's not about living longer, although that's always the sort of easy way to understand it. The reason you're living longer is because you're healthy. It's because you're not getting cancer. It's because you're not getting heart disease. It's because you're not getting dementia. All of these things that are currently the leading killers in the modern world, we want to defer those until later and later in life. And so... Um, I mean, quite apart from anything else, from a purely pragmatic point of view, aging is hugely expensive. If you look mm. at the global cost of dementia, I think it's about a trillion dollars a year at the moment. And it's only projected, obviously, as the global population ages, that number's going to go up and up. And so governments around the world, if they've got access to these anti-aging medicines that can push... Um, push age or you know push the process of aging further back into the future it's going to be a huge cost saving even from a purely economic standpoint there was a study um that was done a few years ago in the us and they said that if we could come up with a a quite a modest uh, intervention that could extend life by about 2.2 years and do so by delaying the aging process by that same period of time, that would be worth seven trillion dollars just to the us by 2050 and wow. so you know, that's just an incredible, incredible amount of money. There's a huge incentive to sort this thing out. Um, so I think it's very likely to be universal just because the economic and social benefits of it are so, so large. I mean, it'd be wild if the NHS was just something there for when you were injured, just when you cut yourself or fell or maybe broke a bone or did something stupid. That's the reason why the NHS exists, to protect us from the silly things we do as opposed to the things that happen to us over periods of, of time. Yeah, I think that some of this stuff is going to be you know, still done in, by doctors and hospitals. Um, you know, when you're talking about drugs, obviously you can pop mm. a pill at home without necessarily needing too much supervision. But some of these things are going to be intermittent treatments. You know, it might be like visiting your dentist. You might pop in every six months and, you know, your doctor will have a look at your concentrations of senescent cells and different tissues and how your DNA is doing in various parts of your body. And if you need a top of a particular kind of stem cell or whatever. And then, you know, some of these treatments, um, depending on what works, depending on, um, you know, how we end up rolling this thing out in practice, some of them could be quite, you know, some of them could require being in a hospital. So if you're going to have a stem cell transplant, for example, you know, you might want to be under medical supervision for a few days after that at a minimum. So it's very hard to know how it's actually going to pan out in practice. But I, I you know, I, I sort of laud the vision that by and large, these things are going to be routine. It's going to be like a dentist trip or an optician trip where you just go in, you have a checkup, you get yeah. you know, sent away with a few pills or perhaps, you know, every few years you might be given a sort of bigger procedure, but it's going to be, you know, no crazier than the sort of stuff that we have done in our dentist surgeries.
Yeah, it's going to be like getting an MOT for your car, basically. I mean, it feels, on reading the book, it feels like there's so many things that contribute to aging. There's so many possible ways in which aging could be solved that it feels like it's a massive interdisciplinary challenge. It feels like we need more communication between different medical fields and bring those medical fields to together and encourage them to do cross-disciplinary work in science. Now, as a scientist, do you think that's ever going to be possible yeah i do and the reason i think it's possible is because scientists will to a large extent follow the money mm-hmm. i think there's a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy with aging research at the moment which is that um let, let's take the example of cancer research and cancer research i also think by the way is grossly underfunded but it's it's at the same time vastly greater in terms of its funding than aging research is imagine that um you know you've done a degree in biology you're wondering what you're going to do with your phd you might well be interested in cancer because you've had lectures in cancer as an undergrad. So you go and do a PhD in cancer. Then you get to the end of that period of time. What are you going to do as your postdoc, which is your next stage of your career after your PhD? Well, you're probably going to stick with cancer, aren't you? Because, you know, that's what your knowledge is. You might have a few papers that can back up that you've got the skills in that area. And so you're going to get a postdoc in that. Then when you go on to try and start a lab of your own, again, you're not going to deviate wildly from your preceding expertise. You're going to carry on working as a cancer researcher. And ultimately, that means when you go back to lecture the undergrads who are being trained, you know, 10 20 years later you're not going to tell them about aging either because you're a cancer expert you haven't you know you haven't got anything to contribute in terms of aging biology and so you end up with this sort of vicious circle where mm. i feel like cancer being big and i feel like aging being small can be a self-fulfilling prophecy and so i think if we start to have some more directed um funding streams so things that have to be used for aging research prop you know proper aging research something you also often find is that a stream of funding that's sort of labeled aging research just like the national institute for aging in the u.s actually ends up being directed toward the specific diseases the end points of the aging mm-hmm. process rather than the fundamental causes at the beginning if we um take a bit more of a <clears throat> sort of centralized um i hesitate to say command and control because that always sounds like you're going to have some sort of terrible communist uh, overseeing of every single minor detail but you know if we were to direct scientists attention toward aging um and show them you know sh- show them some of these incredible results like that's why i wrote this book to sort of show that this field has so much promise to try and excite scientists about this stuff then i don't think there's any reason why this research should be you know any harder than cancer research or heart disease research is now it's just it really needs that focus that money it needs people to understand how important it is in order to get anywhere so in that case, how do we approach it from a slightly different angle? How do we engage the policymakers and the public in the science of biogerontology? Almost. Good work. Very well pronounced. <laughs> yeah, I think the, the way to do that is is basically just to explain to people what this actually means. This isn't some, you know, freakish immortality quest by a handful of lunatics mm-hmm. this is a hugely important social economic problem it's going to tackle all of the diseases that everyone cares about for themselves for their relatives you know for their friends because no one wants to get cancer no one wants their mum to get dementia no one wants their dad to have a heart attack so if you can sort of couch it in those terms if you can explain to people that this is the best single way to try and cure to try and tackle some of these problems then i think suddenly it you know turns out it changes it from being some sort of sci-fi freak show where we're all going to live in some immortal dystopia um and makes it much more accessible and the other thing i think it's really important to emphasize is um that we aren't talking about extending the sort of old 
part of life as, as we currently understand it. So there's a common misconception that if we uh, start treating aging, you're going to live your first 70 or 80 years as normal, then you're going to spend mm. 50 years in a nursing home. And that just isn't what's going to happen, either from a theoretical or a practical standpoint. Because when we do slow and reverse aging in the lab, what we see in the animals is that they stay healthier, they effectively stay younger longer. And even from a theoretical standpoint, what do you die of? You die of diseases. And I've, you know, I've listed them before, so I won't list them again. But yeah. the point is, you know, if you're free of those diseases, you're not going to die. Whereas if you do have all these diseases, if you do have all that frailty, you're going to die. And so it's not even theoretically possible to extend the sort of unhealthy, frail part at the end of life. And I think by explaining that to people mm. and making it seem less weird and making it seem appealing, then that's ultimately how we're going to make progress with this stuff. Well, we're both in our 30s. Do, do you think we will be the last generation who get to live ages? Well, do you think we will be the generation, sorry, who will get to live agelessly? Or do you think we'll be the last generation to actually die of age? I do wonder about this. And I'm not <laughs> sure. It's very hard to be certain. Um, I'll end up hedging my bets to some extent. But what I found was, as I wrote um, the final part of the final sort of science chapter of the book, I talk about reprogramming our biology and the idea that we could build these huge computer models that would allow us to simulate an entire human being to understand, you know, we could bring all this data. We've got huge DNA sequencing data sets. We've got huge proteomic data sets that look at every single protein inside a cell or inside a tissue. There's going to come a point where we're going to be able to integrate all that into some kind of systems biology model of what a human being is. And I think that's the point at which, you know, we can truly think about curing aging because we can understand the whole of the system as a whole. We can come up with interventions that will stabilize that system, that will maintain it in a youthful state. And as I was writing this, I was thinking, this sounds bonkers. This sounds like some, you know, far future sci-fi, you know, machine learning artificial intelligence ridiculous implausible quantities of data but then you think you know imagine this is going to be 50 years away mm. which maybe is optimistic but it's not a ridiculous time scale if you look back at what's happened over the last 50 years um you know it was only in the 1950s that we discovered the structure of dna and now we can sequence a genome for about a thousand dollars in a few hours so we've totally transformed our understanding of how the genetic code is stored. We've got you know, incredible new microscopy techniques. We've got incredible ways to look at human bodies on, on a big scale and on a tiny scale. Um, and if you, you know, I, I wouldn't bet against having some of those systems biology models in 50 years time. We just had um, another great example from the last month or two is that we've, this is a, this is a strange thing to phrase and the protein biologists get crossed. We've solved the protein folding problem with machine learning is the sort of popular <laughs> science interpretation. There, there are nuances and subtleties underneath that. But basically we've used neural networks which are this you know incredible way to understand vast quantities of data we've used those to understand the way that proteins fold up inside our cells which is something that was you know we've been making incremental progress towards for decades and finally machine learning has come along and basically turned the problem on its head and we've been able to get you know we've made it be able to make much bigger strides than we ever thought were possible in a much shorter time than we thought so even if you think this stuff is going to be 50 years away then you think about well, we're in our 30s well I very much hope to still be alive in 50 years because even if nothing else happens, even, you know, assuming I live a relatively healthy life and I don't get hit by a bus, I should still be alive at the age of, you know, 80, 85. And that means that potentially I could be around to benefit from the first systems biology models of aging. And actually, you know, I hope that if I live a healthy life, if, you know, maybe I'll start taking senolytics in my 60s because we'll definitely understand that by that point. I might take, you know, metformin. I might be taking other drugs, better drugs than, you know, that aren't even on the drawing board now. I'll be able to benefit from, you know, even if you think gene therapy is 30 years away, I might have gene therapy, you know, when I'm, when I'm in my 60s. And what that means is that I'm going to be living longer and longer. And that gives us more time to develop these systems biology models. So 
it's you know it's a foolish scientist who makes a hard prediction and says that ours is going to be the last mortal generation or we're going to make it or you know whatever the cutoff is going to be but it's far from crazy to suggest that we're going to live substantially longer than we expect to now if you just think about the sort of time scales that are involved well if ai helps us to achieve longevity escape velocity then maybe i'll reframe my hope of dying at 69 and hope for that 90 <laughs> or perhaps even even 100 and folks listening to this this podcast or, or watching it on youtube and they want to get educated on the latest science behind aging how can they go about doing that I honestly think, and I, I, this is going to sound like a plug because it is, I guess, but reading my <laughs> book is a really good way of doing that. Because what I've, what I've tried to do in the book is to summarize all of the sort of, um, all of the, the leading developments in the field. I've tried to take a, a big sort of review and I've tried to make it accessible to as many people as possible. You don't have to have a scientific background to read this book. The idea is that, you know, it takes you through all of the, I use a slightly different construction of hallmarks of aging. The original 2013 paper had nine and my book's got 10 because I've switched a few things around. But basically I look at all the different ways that we can treat all of these different fundamental underlying causes of aging. And then there are, I think there are 400 references in the back. So if you want to take a deep dive on any particular topic, there is plenty of additional reading material. Not all of that is like, you know, hardcore scientific papers. I've tried to reference other articles in the popular press or videos or things that are a bit easier to get your head around as well. So honestly, um, I, I wanted this book to be the best summary of the field that it could be. So if I've done justice to it, that's very much what I hope it is. Well, Andrew Steele, it is a book that makes me feel hopeful about the future. And I do highly recommend it for anyone who wants to live just a little bit longer. So Andrew Steele, thank you for your time. Thanks for having me. Thank you to Andrew for sharing his thoughts on how we might cure aging. You can find out more by purchasing his new book, Ageless, The New Science of Getting Older Without Getting Old, available now. If you like what you've heard, then you can subscribe for our latest episode. Or follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at Futures Podcast. More episodes, transcripts, and show notes can be found at futurespodcast.net. Thank you for listening to the Futures Podcast.